0: This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, we have an absolute banger of an episode lined up. We have with us the renowned scholar, professor at American University in Washington, D.C., studying American constitutional history and law, amongst many other awesome things, and author of one of my favorite books that I've read this year called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. Uh, Shockingly, I know this book is extremely up my alley. The uh, listeners to the pod will be shocked. Uh, The amazing Daniel Dreisbach is here, and we're going to talk about the Bible and the American founding and tons of other good stuff. But first, Uh, Let's set this bad boy up. Okay, so we've been talking about the book of Genesis these uh, past bunch of weeks, and I want to say a quick word about the Joseph story. And in particular, I want to point to a a Jewish literary tradition that dates all the way back to classical antiquity, about 2,000 years, which is to refer to Joseph as Joseph the Righteous, which is in Hebrew, Yosef HaTzadik. Uh, we've alluded to this, uh, and we've referred to this tradition on the show before, but why of all the heroes in Genesis does Joseph get the moniker the righteous? I mean, no shade of Joseph, but there are definitely other candidates. There's Abraham, there's Sarah. I mean, come on, Isaac nearly gets sacrificed for crying out loud. Like, why is Joseph called the righteous? The most compelling answer I've heard, which I've also mentioned briefly on the pod before, is that of all the major protagonists in Genesis— Adam and Eve, Noah during the flood, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, and on and on and on. Joseph is the only character, the only major character, who never speaks to God and in whose biblical story God never appears as a character. And given that he also has the most harrowing life experience of any character in Genesis, it's actually nothing short of remarkable that Joseph remains as dedicated to his God as he manifestly does throughout his narrative arc. In his dedication to an idea that he can't totally be sure is right, at least not with the same degree of certainty as his prophetic ancestors, his faith and determination, even in the face of uncertainty, this is what makes him Joseph the Righteous. And this seems to me an apt analogy for the history of American liberalism. So Churchill famously quipped that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried. But what's remarkable is that the truth of this statement was not just merely understandable with hindsight. It actually was clear to the American founders at the time of the founding. There was great anxiety about the path upon which this country sought to embark. And what allowed the liberal idea to flourish is that its proponents understood its great potential for unlocking human virtue and moral growth and believed that that potential was worth cultivating even without any guarantee or certainty that it would bear fruit. I mean, look, the American experiment could just as easily have culminated in Dred Scott as in the second inaugural. The founders in their experiment, took a chance on the latter. And so in the end, it's not a mistake that one of the most cited biblical verses in the history of American political theology is actually Proverbs 1434. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is their approach to any people. The root of the word righteousness in that verse in Proverbs, tzedek in Hebrew, is the same exact root as the moniker that classical Jewish tradition assigned to Joseph a nation that commits to its highest ideals, even in the face of uncertainty, political or otherwise, is righteous. And that righteousness in turn can sustain and exalt it even through its darkest hours. Now, in the history of the American experiment, one of the most prominent and crucial sources of righteous political thought, or at least aspiring righteous political thought, has actually been the Bible. And this was particularly true at the moment of the American founding. But What are all the different ways that this played out, and how can this inform our understanding of the current moment in American history? So to unpack all of this, I brought on the man who quite literally wrote the book on this topic. He's a professor at the American University in Washington, D.C., author of the fabulous Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. Daniel Dreisbach is here. Daniel, thank you so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Oh, this is going to be a total blast. Okay, so... Let's jump right in. Political historian uh, Donald Lutz surveyed American political literature from the founding era, 1760 to 1805. And you mentioned his work in your book. And one of his discoveries, which you cover, was that not only were biblical writings more frequently cited than any other type of writing in these works, they actually accounted for one third of all citations. But the single work that's cited more frequently in this literature than any other is the book of Deuteronomy. Moses' valedictory address to the Israelites. One thing I found interesting was that a distant second place was Montesquieu's spirit of the law, but it actually wasn't even that close. And in fact, founding era political writers cited Deuteronomy alone almost twice as often as the writings of John Locke. So my question is, why Deuteronomy, right? What was it about this particular mosaic work that spoke to the American founders?
2: Well, I think there's several reasons why Americans were drawn to this particular book. I would start by noting that uh, the way that Deuteronomy was viewed, it was viewed as sort of a encapsulation of the preceding four books of Moses. And so it was a very convenient way of Uh, sort of putting your hands around uh, Mosaic law and the history of the children of Israel. Uh, I sometimes tell my students it was viewed as the Reader's Digest version of the books of Moses. So I would start with that observation, but I think it goes much deeper than that. Deuteronomy tells the story of a covenanted people, a people in a covenant with God. And that's the way in which many American colonists and even many Americans at the time of independence viewed themselves. They viewed themselves as God's new Israel. And so they they saw themselves, they could read about themselves in the story that was recounted in Deuteronomy. But I still think there's another reason why Deuteronomy was so appealing to the them. And that is this. Deuteronomy uh, retells the story of a people having fled slavery in Egypt have to rebuild a polity, a political community. And that's the way a many Americans saw themselves in the wake of independence. And so what you saw was sort of a roadmap, a nuts and bolts approach to how do you put a political society together, starting, if you will recall, with with uh, Jethro's advice to Moses on what kind of people do you look to lead you. Think about Exodus chapter 18, verse 21. And so as Americans are thinking, how do we reconstitute ourselves in the aftermath of independence? They see a guide for that uh, enormous project in the story that is told in,
1: in Deuteronomy. And so I think they're drawn to it for these reasons. So I just asked this question to the great uh, biblical translator, Robert Alter, on a recent episode of the podcast. But I want to ask you as well, since you've studied the Bible, not just on its own terms as literature, but actually looked more specifically at its political reception and in particular in the American experiment. So here's the question. Does the Hebrew Bible think that political order is even possible? Right. Like Moses sins and isn't allowed into the promised land. Tribal self-government in the book of Judges results in awful bloodshed. And then the people ask for a king. Right. And then the kings are mostly just monstrous moral failures. Like even David experiences moral failure and Solomon's reign ends up producing disaster. Right. Like what's the Bible's verdict on political order? And should contemporary Americans be frightened or comforted or both by uh, by the answer?
2: Well, my instinct is to answer your question, not so much as to how I view it, but how did the American founders view it? And I think Mm. certainly the founding generation, we're speaking about the last third or so of the 18th century. I think they thought that this was a, that they saw a model for how to constitute a political society. Uh, They saw, I, I think, a Clear sense of how to build a a political order in in the Hebrew scriptures than they saw in the New Testament. Now, there were some discrete passages in the New Testament that they looked to that talked about the obligations of citizenship and things like that. But in terms of how you actually build and structure a government, uh, how do you view a political anthropology that uh, shapes how you design uh, government institutions and the like. I think they absolutely thought that the Hebrew scriptures offered keen insights
1: on on those kinds of things. Every every chapter in your book is just like saturated with insight. Uh, But one in particular that I loved was your forensic reading of how Micah chapter six, verse eight gets used in the founding era. And what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. The verse is often... Uh, popularly understood as prescribing individual conduct, which it does technically. And that's that's how, particularly in the community that I grew up, it's it's understood in the Orthodox Jewish community. But writers and political thinkers in the founding era actually understood it as describing how a nation should conduct itself. And in this sense, by the way, I actually think they were quite sharp readers. Right? So the great 20th century Hebrew biblical commentator Moshe Zidel pointed out that the language and syntax in the Hebrew of Micah 6 actually directly parallels and in some cases actually seems to directly quote the prophet Samuel's farewell address in the first Samuel chapter 12 when he reflects to the Israelites upon the political choices that they've made as a nation, as a people. So my question is, to what extent does the Bible concern itself with the fate of nations and how did the founders understand this?
2: Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right about this, Micah 6a. One of the questions I I asked myself as I was working on this book is, did the American founders read the Bible in a way that is faithful to the context of the passage that they were drawn to? Uh, I think we're we're rightly concerned when politicians uh, quote the scripture, right? There's this uh, keen attraction to to quote the Bible in such a way that it addresses some political moment, uh, some political exigencies of the moment and so I think we're rightly concerned when we hear authoritative texts including the Bible being cited in its in a political discourse in a political context and I think that the the American founders sometimes understood the Bible in a way that I think is more faithful to contact. Sometimes I think they misuse the Bible, as, again, we might expect politicians to do. But I think you're right here in uh, Micah 6-8 that the founding generation, in many respects— understood and interpreted this text in a way that's more faithful than I typically hear uh, from the pulpit today. And that is, this is a text that we sometimes call a covenant lawsuit text, right? God has a grievance with his people. They have drifted away from him. And so in a sense, he's brought a lawsuit against them. And it's intriguing because The response of Israel, having heard the indictment, is what a a prosecutor always wants to hear. The defendant pleads guilty. The children of Israel says, you're right. We have have departed from you, notwithstanding your faithfulness to us from bringing us safely across the Red Sea and and, and across the Jordan River into the promised land. What do you want us to do about that? And of course, in that famous uh, instruction there in verse 8, what does God say? Speaking through his attorney, the prophet Micah, you got to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And as you say, this is in the context of, of what a nation must do to bring itself back into alignment uh, with righteousness. And so I think this is one of the rich features of the American reading of the Hebrew scriptures is that they understood that this was a conversation that God had with his people, with a nation, the nation Israel. And and again, as I mentioned earlier, so many Americans from the earliest colonial days right through the American founding period viewed themselves as God's new Israel. And so they could very easily read themselves into the story as, as God speaking to this new nation, Uh, The new American nation, just as we hear God speaking to the nation Israel in the pages of the Hebrew
1: scripture. One thing you said earlier that I I wanted to pick up on is you do have that anxiety today. I think you feel that anxiety like in the commentariat when a contemporary politician Uh, cite scripture like oh you have to be so careful because what if you're misinterpreting you don't really find that anxiety in the founding era or even for a good deal afterwards like everybody's citing scripture because it's a shared common vernacular it supplies like a shared common vernacular it's also a a sacred you know a sacred text but it's like uh but it's a lingua franca almost it's like almost a political philosophical lingua franca it's precisely because we don't Treat it that way nowadays that it becomes kind of like a forbidden cultic object. you have to be so careful when you use it. I guess that that raises the question like what replaced the Bible as the shared source of common language for Americans like was it mash like Seinfeld, maybe nothing right what should we and what should we expect to result from this from not having that lingua franca
2: Let, let me first say I think that that term lingua franca works very well here because it does provide a a common language. Uh, that is read, uh, spoken, understood by the American people. Uh, One of the things I mention in my book is that so many of the founding figures quoted the Bible, quoted the Bible at length, without quotation mark or citation. And that tells you something about the place of the Bible in the culture. They didn't need quotation marks because they were speaking to an audience that knew the Bible, and they recognized these words when they were spoken. But I I think we have to sort of insert here very quickly, notwithstanding the fact that that Americans knew the Bible, knew it well. By the way, one reason I think is is because of the use of the Bible in literacy education. Uh, The Bible, especially the King James English translation of the Bible, which was the most common English translation in use at this time in America, is particularly well suited for Uh, literacy education. It uses a a limited vocabulary. It uses a lot of short words, and it also uses a lot of dramatic language. And and this made it uh, sort of an ideal sort of Dick and Jane book, right? How to teach someone to read. And so I think we we can look at the founding generation and say with some confidence that many, if not most of them, learned to read with the Bible in front of them. Now, I do want to make the point, the fact that the Bible was known so well does not mean that everyone in the generation accepted the Bible as God's word, so to speak. There were skeptics among the founders. They valued the Bible as a great text for for teaching ethics and morality and for its literary qualities and the like. But there were some prominent founders who were very clear in questioning whether this was a book of divine origin. Now, what what begins to replace it? Well, I think one of the things we see in the Western world is that the the translation of the Bible into the vernacular sets off a number of of events, uh, one of which is a demand for printed material. Generally, once you teach people how to read, they read the Bible, now they want to read more. And so you be you see an explosion in the western world in a print culture. That's manifested in the in the growth of newspapers and books on all kinds of topics far beyond the Bible and and spiritual topics. Now, this is going to take time, of course, but not only Americans, but people throughout the Western world are now being drawn to read a literature that moves far beyond the Bible itself. And so over time, I think uh, some of these other types of printed material are going to uh, begin to replace the Bible as, as sort of the reading material of that generation. Now, I can't let this, go without saying you you raise the possibility of, of the television. And I think there's some really interesting parallels here. Uh, for example, you know, there have been some s- uh, studies that compared uh, the amount of time that a typical American in the colonial era spent in a church pew listening to a sermon. And, and we're talking about probably uh, three services a week, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, and probably at least in New England, Thursday evening, people would come together and they might sit for two or three hours for each one of these sessions. And there have been those who make the the comparison that the amount of time that Americans spent in a pew listening to a sermon in the late colonial period is somewhat similar to the amount of time that a typical American today spends in front of a television. That tells us how important this moment was in the life of the culture in conveying ideas and values. And so while, while the pulpit may have been the great conveyor of ideas, the, the preaching of the word of God in the colonial and early national period, I think increasingly we see that uh, being lost today to the television and, and other media influences that, that occupy a somewhat comparable degree of
1: our time and concentration. I love that point. I mean, if I'm thinking about kind of like the the history of American political theology or specifically presidential political theology, like the last great kind of political sermon that I can recall might be Barack Obama's Joshua Generation speech, right? That might be a good candidate. But what what has America lost in I mean, cuz the sermon becomes such like a almost like a quintessentially American, it takes over from the Anglo tradition, but this comes this quintessentially American mode of oratory and communication. What have we lost in kind of losing, or in sort of the decline of the sermon as kind of like a a mode of public intellectualism?
2: Look, I think the ripples that uh, flow out from the loss of that are really quite significant. And we might just start with a a sort of, what we were talking about earlier, a common language, a common vernacular a common understanding of moments in our history. We lose some of that uh, those literary allusions, those parables, those figures of speech that are so deeply embedded, not only in the Bible itself, but are then manifested in these political sermons. Um, you know, think about how many figures of speech that are so defining of our of our culture that have a biblical origin uh, could you imagine think about a, a metaphor like a house divided which Abraham Lincoln used to great effect in describing the precarious uh, predicament of the nation on on the threshold of a great civil war. In that simple biblical metaphor of a house divided, he's able to communicate a lot more than a wordy dissertation. But once you start to lose this common language that comes out of a biblical tradition, we lose that aspect of our ability Ability to communicate with each other. Now, I'm just talking here on the literary level. Uh, I think there's also a loss of, of certain values, a, a way of communicating, uh, certain morals and ethics that are oftentimes at the heart of this kind of, of discourse. And so, with the loss of such a common vocabulary and means of communication, perhaps. That should be a warning. Maybe it's partly an explanation for the way that we all seem to be pulling apart from each other in so many diverse uh, directions. What is it that holds us together? Yes, I think in big part it's the loss of that kind of Bible culture, but it's about a loss of other aspects of culture as well that are in some ways tied up with a religious vocabulary and vernacular. And that would include things like the political sermon like the thanksgiving day proclamation yes presidents still issue their yearly thanksgiving day proclamation but i don't think it carries the same kind of weight that thanksgiving day proclamations did at one point in american history there were colonies that that would week after week after week would issue thanksgiving day proclamations and not only thanksgiving day proclamations but Setting aside time in the public can- calendar for, for prayer, fasting, humiliation, confession, uh, repentance. These were moments when, when the American people would come together for a shared experience. These proclamations would have been published in the no- local newspapers, and people would have been reading them. And on these days, they would find them their way to a, a, a spiritual center where they would reflect and, and talk about and listen to sermons on these topics that had the effect, I think, of drawing our attention as to what aids us as a people, what divides us as a people, what can draw us down as a people.
1: You can see in that dynamic, or rather in that trajectory of American public life, what Catherine Boyle, Catherine Boyle, previous guest on the pod, friend of the pod, to Catherine Boyle. She referred to this recently as the decline in seriousness of of American public life. You know, I I mean, I've mentioned him on the pod many times. My grandfather, Rabbi Norman Lamb, the greatest by consensus, this isn't really my uh, obviously I'm prejudiced, but consensus, the most accomplished American Jewish orator in American Jewish history he had a wonderful essay. He was a great defender of the sermon as a mode of communication, mode of public communication. He's a wonderful essay called "Notes of an Unrepentant Darshan." Darshan is the the Hebrew term for a a crafter and deliverer of sermons. And it strikes me that. By losing the sermon, we've kind of replaced it with three different speech typologies. One is, I suppose, legal speech, which you can find in your not just in the litigation culture that sprung up over the last however many decades. We can find it in your local HR department. Everything's kind of been been lawified. You could find it in th- that's one typology. Second one might be therapeutic speech, talking about trauma and words as violence and so forth, and talking about everything as a as an illness as opposed to just a problem. Uh, and the third is talking points, right? So what's replaced the Thanksgiving sermon is like something boilerplate constructed for cable TV, and it's an impo- it's all three of these are just like impoverished ways of speaking, and it's it's a great shame that we've lost. What we've lost in losing the sermon is a commitment to artistry in public life.
2: Well, let me uh, mention one other thing here that i I, I don't think we should gloss over uh, and this I think is the point that. The great commentator Neil Postman made, and uh, you know, he says, as we move from this kind of print culture uh, to sort of a, a television Sesame culture, we're dumbing down our actual ability to communicate. Uh, think about the ability to sit and listen to a sermon for three hours. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> painful to think about it, but think about that. Which, which again. Uh, your typical american would be doing this two or three times a week to today we strain to hold someone's attention for 15 seconds on sesame street and and by sort of dumbing down our our literacy so to speak I think it inhibits our ability to to convey serious topics, complicated topics. One of the examples, if I remember correctly, that Postman gives in his famous book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, is he says, think about those Lincoln-Douglas debates. If you read the the record that survives of these debates— uh, they were making sophisticated arguments with sophisticated language they were using sentences with clauses within clauses speaking for hours on end but he points out who is their audience these were yeoman farmers these aren't sort of ivy league intellectuals these are your ordinary americans And they're enraptured by this kind of discourse. Could you imagine what would happen if politicians today tried to engage in that kind of discourse? The the networks would rebel. They would refuse to air the the debates, right? They would say Americans wouldn't put up with this kind of thing. But it says something about the nature of discourse, the level of sophistication in the communication of these important ideas about about life, about politics, about the affairs of of our spiritual condition. And I think we've lost that, or we are at least losing that as we move from this this biblical print culture to the sort of the television 15-second soundbite.
1: You could think of lots of different models of freedom of religion that have risen and fallen throughout the course of American history, but which model made possible the first prayer in an American Congress, the Congress convened by the colonists in 1774? What made that possible? Well, I'm
2: not quite sure I understand your your question, but let me make this observation that I think Americans uh, do make some real innovations in thinking about the place of religion in public life, but in particular the rights of conscience and 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 freedom of religion.
1: Right, that that's what I'm asking. I mean, I think I think your average person might assume that a properly constituted and convened session of Congress either could not have a prayer, or uh, and in fact, you know, there were um, there was among the American founders who doubted that such a prayer could be pulled off well. So what What made it possible?
2: Well, I think what we see is uh, Americans, especially around the time of independence, are really engaging in some innovative thinking about religious liberty. Uh, and I, I think we see this, by the way, revealed in George Washington's famous letter to the Hebrew congregation. And what does he point out? He says, Americans, in a sense, have embraced a, a useful idea, which is re- religious toleration. But what does he say in that letter? And I think we see this being played out in that first prayer in the first Congress. He says, Americans have abandoned religious toleration as the policy of the state and has in its place embraced religious liberty. Now, what am I speaking of here? You may recall that this motion was made, or, or at least it was suggested, that they start this first session of Congress by calling a chaplain and, and having prayer, which, in fact, they did. But there were a few uh, members of Congress that sort of objected. You know, we can't possibly find a minister that can speak to each of our religious needs, Right. But I think what we're beginning to see is a transition from a rather, a rather liberal view of toleration to one of liberty, and what's the difference? Religious toleration as a matter of government policy recognizes a state authority that in, in its benevolence grants you the privilege of exercising your religion. But a policy of religious liberty says no, religion and religious practice is beyond the reach of civil magistrates. It's a matter of one's own conscience, it is a matter beyond the role of the state. And so I think this is, a, this is a profound moment in the political uh, development of, of humankind when they move from simply recognizing the state can grant or not grant, and that's the danger of toleration. That's what George Washington is warning us about, that if you, if you only go as far as toleration, you are in fact granting the state not to tolerate. But if you embrace in its place an idea of religious liberty, you've placed the right of religious exercise beyond the reach of civil magistrates. You've made it a matter of one's own conscience. Now, we do understand, and Washington himself acknowledges this, that there are times when people in the name of religion threaten fundamental safety of society at large, and we are not going to embrace that. But we do have this expansive, expansive notion of what it means to to exercise one's conscience. And we see the flowering of that at, at this early moment in American history. I think it really comes to a head in Virginia when the Virginia Convention, in its Declaration of Rights, Article 16, chooses to write out the language of religious toleration and inserts the language of free
1: exercise or religious liberty. Speaking of, of Washington, his favorite biblical verse seems to have been Micah 4.4. 4. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. Why was this verse uh, so important to him?
2: Well I think first and foremost it encapsulated his love for his beloved home on the south bank of the Potomac River Mount Vernon so uh, he uses uh, he 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 quotes Micah for more more than he quotes any other literary source any literary source and certainly he quotes it more than any other bible uh, passage uh, so he had a love of it and I, again I think it it just captured what gave him so much joy, so much solace, so much uh, a feeling of security that he had when he was out at Mount Vernon. Now, having said that, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture that speaks to a number of very important ideas and principles. And this has been recognized in in sort of theological discourse for for centuries, if not millennia. And, And that is This idea of sitting in safety under one's own vine and fig tree first speaks to the idea of contentment, to be free of covetousness, not yearning for your neighbor's vines or your neighbor's fig tree. It's that kind of covetousness that disrupts the harmony of a community. And so I think people throughout history have been drawn to that verse because it's speaks to this this idea of of being content with your own vines and your own figs. But it also speaks to this freedom from fear, the fear of war and rumors of war. And of course, I I have to think that that really meant a lot to to the old general, right? Uh, The old general Washington, because you know, no one appreciates peace more than someone who has seen war. And so this idea of, of safety and security under one's own vine and fig tree, I think, really spoke to, to Washington. It also was a metaphor that had come to mean uh, the right of private property. To be under your own vine and your own fig tree, it spoke to a, a pursuit of hospitality, and and Washington, both George and Martha, dispensed hospitality in liberal measures there at, at at Mount Vernon. And so again, this is a metaphor that speaks to hospitality. But I have to add one more, I think, feature of this metaphor, and. It seems to be a largely American innovation of the vine and fig tree metaphor. And and Washington is one of the first to use it in this sense. The vine and fig tree in the early 1790s, this is after the Constitution has been written, as Americans are debating the First Amendment with its language of the free exercise of religion, increasingly Americans are using the metaphor of the vine and fig tree as an image for religious liberty. And of course, Washington connects religious liberty with the vine and fig tree with his in his famous le- letter to the Hebrew congregation. Uh, I think it's right, August 1790. Uh, but he's only the first. If you look at, just track the number of uses of this metaphor, the vine and fig tree, As a picture of enjoying religious liberty in contentment, free from oppression, free from persecution, the numbers just explode in the 1790s. Uh, It's showing up all over the place in in American political literature. So this is an enormously rich picture. All right. The idea of being in a place
1: where none shall make us afraid. I love it. Okay, so last question. Your book is chock full of... Just uh, really, it's it's an excavation of public intellectual life in the era of the framing, and you encounter so many different characters, so many different references, and, and its texts and, and personalities are flying fast and furious. So if you had to pick one, who's an underrated thinker from the founding era in terms of interesting use of the Bible or, or the biblical text as a political resource?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I would say that... Uh... Uh, Let me make a couple observations. Uh, Earlier, we noted that the Bible was appealing not only to believers of the Bible as God's Word, but it was also very appealing to to skeptics. And so, interestingly, some of the framers who use the Bible the most frequently are the skeptics. (laughs) And John
1: John Adams looks at Payne and is like, this guy is a heretic. That's right.
2: (laughs) That's right. But not only Tom Payne, of course, At the very heart of the argument in common sense is 1 Samuel chapter 8, right? This argument against hereditary monarchy. But Ben Franklin, he knows the Bible very well. Now, I think there's a couple things going on here. One is Franklin and Paine are skilled polemicists, and they know their audience. And so again they're they're speaking in a language that they know will resonate, will connect with their audiences. But having said that, there are a lot of I would say lesser known founders who who knew the Bible really well and incorporated it into their rhetoric, into their discourse. And I think it's worth paying attention to them. Uh John Jay, he's a familiar figure, but He was a devout man who who used the Bible frequently. He goes on to become, by the way, uh, um, the second president of the American Bible Society. Uh, So he's he's very much in love with the Bible and wants to see it disseminated. Uh, But there are others, like a Roger Sherman. Uh, I think in some respects, Roger Sherman is one of the most underappreciated founders. Uh, But he was a devout man who, again, knew the Bible well. Uh, He wrote lengthy essays on the Bible, on theological subjects, but also on uh, on theology as it intersected with with politics, and and you can't read his writings without some fana- familiarity uh, with the Bible. So uh, those are two examples. Someone like a John Witherspoon, who was a clergyman, p- president of the college in New Jersey in Princeton, right? We today call Princeton University. Uh, he was a clergyman, and it's not going to surprise us that he weaves the Bible. Throughout his writings, so uh, there are a number of, I think, sadly underrated, underappreciated founders who really understood the Bible and and made it a, a central part of of
1: their way of expressing themselves, of of conveying and communicating ideas. Presidents of universities at this time are really uh, this is uh, like the. I don't know Jordan Berkeley Ewing era of just great university presidents. You have Witherspoon at Princeton. You have Ezra Stiles at Yale, and then eventually at Brown. Also, one of the great, one of the great political theorists and also biblical scholars. I, I, I love this. This is an amazing answer. Okay, really, truly. Last question: What's your next great project? Like, what are you working on now? What this? It's so fascinating to hear all of this. And you and you're such an exciting thinker. What's your next? What's your next project?
2: Well, something I've been working on uh, lately, and, and it's it's really an extension of the book. It's it's really the uh, uh, subject of two or three pages in the book, but I've I've really expanded it uh, out into something much much bigger, and that is the influence of the Bible on the American constitutional tradition. Uh, there are so many features of the American Constitution that I think are informed by by the Bible. And these include broad ideas, such as a, a kind of anthropology. I don't think you can look at the Constitution without an appreciation of of a view of man as a fallen creature. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, right? The, the whole obsession of, of the constitutional framers with checks and balances, I think, reflects a kind of, of a biblical anthropology. But it also includes uh, very specific provisions in the Constitution. And I'll give you a handful of examples. Uh, the, the The idea of that we find in Article 1, Section 8, uh granting Congress the authority to set standards of weights and measures. Uh, this this comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 25. In Article 3, uh, there is a requirement that impeachments uh, for for treason requ- uh, be supported by two witnesses. Uh, again, this comes straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 7, right? The ho- whole idea of of cruel and unusual punishment reflects a number of biblical ideas, but one of which is this, this idea that, that one should not be punished beyond 40 stripes, right? Putting a limit on on punishment for certain offenses. Or or consider, for example, the prohibition on double jeopardy that we find in the Fifth Amendment. This is an idea that the the great Christian church father, St. Jerome, in a commentary on the book of Nahum, said it's an idea that comes out of the first chapter of the book of the prophet Nahum, chapter one, verse nine. And through St. Jerome, it's incorporated into the laws of the church that you should not try someone twice for the same events, and eventually it works its way into civil law, common law, makes its way across the Atlantic, becomes part of colonial law, and eventually it shows up in the Fifth Amendment. So I think there are a lot of these kinds of examples where biblical ideas uh, work their way into the constitutional tradition, first of the colonists, but the early states, and eventually the U.S. Constitution. So this is something I've been thinking about and writing
1: about of late. I have a one-word reaction to this new book project, and it is this, pre-order. I'm so excited for this. This is going to be unbelievable. Well, you've just bought yourself a, a second appearance on this podcast, because that sounds amazing. I'm really, really excited. Uh, this has been really, really unbelievable. I, uh, Daniel, I can't thank you enough for coming on. We're really excited to have you here.
2: Oh, Thanks so much for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. And I enjoy your commentary uh, on the Bible. I, uh, I'm one of your uh, readers that always stops when you have, uh, why read the Bible in Hebrew? Hey,
1: now we're talking. I take I take, the, I
2: take those tweets and I pass them on to my wife and I say, you have got to read that. So uh, I, I enjoy uh, your contribution to this conversation.
1: And I, I'm delighted that you would have me on your program. That is awesome. See, always be pushing product. That's the way to go. I'm so excited. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) If you want to understand the accomplishment that is the american experiment it's crucial to understand the shared language that america's founders possessed it's something we've talked about on the pod before it's sort of like the shared scientific and mathematical assumptions that make modern science and engineering possible or medicine for that matter that shared language that lingua franca in the founding era was the bible and fluency in or at least acquaintance with that lingua franca makes so much of american life not only comprehensible in the first place but even once we understand it it enriches our appreciation of the architecture of our political culture now personally i'm not one of those people who's all doom and gloom about a post-religious america or whatever first of all i think reports of religion's demise in american public life have been much exaggerated but more importantly i think we're just now coming through a period during which the dangers of no common language whose or a common language whose syntax and vocabulary have been stress-tested over the course of centuries, the consequences of that lack of common language have been made brutally apparent to the American body politic. And since a culture's deep roots are typically pretty hard to just eradicate or ignore, and since America's political roots are deeply, deeply, deeply enmeshed with the Bible, I actually think we're on the verge of an exciting new era in the history of public theology. So stay tuned. Fun and and hopefully virtuous stuff on the horizon, I think. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a total blast. And uh, while you're here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time.
0: Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at G Faith Effort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about SoulShop, Shop, follow SoulShop Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios and check out soulshopstudios.com.